0: Hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education politics and education policy. I'm Kevin Richard.
1: And I'm Clark Corbin. Kevin, this week and last week, schools all across the state are closing. The school year is coming to an end. But I want to go back to the wild winter Mm -hmm. uh, that we all had. A number of school districts... Because who would want to forget winter, right? right? right. Yeah, just as we're about to start having fun and, and be outside. But yeah, a number of school districts missed... 10, 11 days, um, of school because of these severe winter storms Mm, that we had. You and our data analyst, Randy Schrader had a chance to look at how much school was, was missed and then look at how districts responded or not. Um, tell me about the project and tell me about what you found out.
0: Well, first of all, credit to Randy Schrader, our, our data guy who, who did the heavy lifting on this for sure. Uh, He surveyed uh, school districts and charter schools across the state and and asked two simple questions. How many days did schools lose to this year? We didn't say to winter, but obviously that was the impetus for the project. How many days did you have to call off and how many days did you make up? Uh, Got a pretty good response. Got uh, a majority, a a clear majority of uh, districts and charters from across the state uh, did participate. The numbers are Pretty surprising. Uh, what we found was that uh, about a quarter of the lost days were made up—only about a quarter. And what we heard from a lot of school districts um, was uh, a couple of things, a couple of takeaways. Uh, many said that what they wound up doing was uh, lengthening the school day here and there, you know, adding a few minutes here and there, which does add up and, and does help make up some lost time in the classroom. What we heard from a lot of schools and a lot of school districts was uh, that uh, there was little need for them to add any days or extend much time in the calendar because uh, their schedule already greatly exceeded the uh, the minimum hours required under state law, the minimum instruction hours under state law. And that's really important. We should probably get, on, get touch on that as we talk here. A big takeaway for me was that... Uh, it was very unpopular and not very common for uh, schools to extend the school year much beyond the planned closing date. I mean, if you're if you're planning to close for the year at or around Memorial Day weekend, most districts seem to want to stay on that schedule. And stay on that calendar for a lot of reasons, and those are reasons that really have very little to do with student performance.
1: Yeah, now tell me about, I want to take a closer look at, I believe, the Weezer School District. Mm -hmm. If if I remember, they were one of the ones hardest hit uh, with the winter storms, and you had a chance to talk to the superintendent out in Weezer. What was Weezer's experience, and and what did they end up doing?
0: Well, Weezer's experience, uh, they were right in the path of these storms. I mean, they were closed for uh, 11 school days this year heavy snow you know, tons of snow on the roof that they had to remove by crane by you know, folks climbing up onto the roofs with shovels i mean it was a, a a mess uh the district wound up replacing several days on the calendar but they didn't replace every every day on the calendar and the superintendent will overguard i, I talked to him the other day and he said that the decision was made fairly early that they were not going to try to replace day for day. They they weren't going to try to do one for one, and they wanted to try to keep the end of the school year intact. Uh, Seniors were going to graduate on May 21st, as was planned all along. The last day of school was going to be uh, May 25th, before the Memorial Day weekend. They wanted to stick to that schedule. There was really not much thought about extending the school year past Memorial Day weekend into June, and Weezer's not unique there. You know, the Nampa School District, I talked to uh, the assistant superintendent at some length. When Nampa started to look at their options as they lost a bunch of days to uh, to the storms, there was not a lot of sentiment in that community for extending the school year. And it comes from a variety of sources. The pushback comes from a variety of sources. You've got parents yeah. saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got vacation plans, we've got plane tickets, and so on and so forth. We are... Ex- you know, that, that would be a problem. If you extend yeah. the school year, that's a problem for us. And they and also heard from teachers in the teachers' union saying, you know, teachers have plans, too. And sometimes those plans are uh, a summer job to help make ends meet. Sometimes those plans are going back to school and, and getting uh, some added credits, uh, which a lot of teachers have to do in the summer. So there was not a lot of appetite in that community for extending the school year. So that's what we found you know, was, you know, a lot of these dates were not made up. And the bottom line is that made for a shorter school year that made for less time in the classroom, less interaction between teachers and students. And, you know, when I talked to Will Overgaard in the Weezer district, he he said our test scores are not where we would want them to be. And he believes that the shorter year had a, a factor in that.
1: Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about the legal framework here, Kevin. Why this matters? Um, because this isn't arbitrary. You can't just start the school year uh, and end it whenever you want. There are minimum hour requirements um, that schools have to reach, and the threshold is different whether you're a high school. But tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about the legal context and what uh, what is required
0: of schools in Idaho. Right, right. The whole math revolves around instruction hours. It really doesn't revolve around school days, but it does revolve around the hours, and it varies greatly, as you mentioned. Uh, for kindergartners who go part-time, the requirement is 450 hours in the classroom. For high schoolers, that number goes up to 990 hours. What we heard over and over as we got survey responses was, uh, uh school districts saying, look, we're well over those uh, state requirements, we're well over that minimum. So when it came down to doing the math and figuring out how much time we really had to make up, many districts and many charters uh, came to the conclusion that they really didn't have to make up that much to meet the state's minimum. And that's true. Uh, The the state's minimum uh, is, you know, it's the governing rule here. It's what what the districts have to comply with. It's what the charters have to comply with. But as I looked at it, uh, Idaho's minimum, this uh, 450 for kindergartners, up to 990 hours for high school seniors, it's relatively low. You know, not every state uses an hour requirement. Some use school days as the requirement. But among the states that use an hourly threshold, an hourly uh, requirement, Idaho's numbers are fairly low compared to other states. So Maybe it shouldn't be that terribly surprising that school districts and charters are already above that state minimum, if that state minimum is fairly low to begin with. So that may have been, not may have been, I think it was definitely a big factor in the equation as this uh, winter unfolded and as the makeup process unfolded, because uh, a lot of districts and charters determined that there was no legal need to go back and and claw back and take some of those hours and get some of those days back. Now, I want to, a couple more things
1: before we move on from this topic just really quickly. Go back to this year's legislative session, and a couple of legislators pushed a a bill into law that would have allowed school districts to seek a waiver from Mm -hmm. the minimum instructional requirements, and this bill was passed with an emergency clause attached to it. It, They made a lot of noise in the state house about... These schools were ravaged by these winter storms, and this law was needed to protect those schools. Now, we have 115 public school districts in the state and 40-some charter schools. Do you have any idea how many of them um,
0: availed themselves of that new law? Oh, I can uh, round it up to zero. No district or charter used this uh, law, and that kind of surprised me because, as you mentioned, Uh, A lot of momentum in the legislature about this, Uh, a lot of sense of urgency. You got school districts that are really up against it. We've got to give them some sort of uh, leeway uh, in case they can't reach these uh, minimums. A lot of impetus to get this bill passed, and the bill passed with only one dissenting vote in the House, only one dissenting vote in the Senate. It was signed into law, but the timing really uh, did not favor uh, the use of this. And, and again, when I talked to Will Overgaard in Weezer, he, he talked about, look, we wanted to get this thing resolved. We wanted to have our calendar set as early as possible, once we had a sense that the snow was starting to dissipate and once we had a sense of what the rest of the year was going to look like. Um, so they wanted to get something set. They didn't want to wait on the legislature. And that makes a lot of sense, this bill was signed into law by Governor Otter on April 6th. That was after the legislative session. It was one of the last uh, one of the last actions uh, the governor took after the legislature left town. April 6th is awfully late in the school year. Uh, you can hardly blame school administrators uh, for wanting to get this calendar resolved for the sake of the parents, for the sake of the kids, for the sake of the staff. You wanted some answers, and you really couldn't wait on the legislature not knowing exactly what would happen. So I think... If we ever had a severe winter like this, again, it would be interesting to see if uh, any any districts or charter, charters wound up using this law. Okay. Sounds good. Kevin, I really appreciate you and Randy taking a deep dive.
1: Uh, that story is at the top of our webpage right now. If you want to head over to IdahoEdNews.org and take a look, find out a little bit uh, more about some specific instances with some specific school districts. But I do appreciate it, and nobody else is doing this kind of story, so it's a great uh, service to our readers and to the taxpayers here in Idaho. But I'd encourage everybody to go check that story out, Kevin. So thank you. Oh, thank
0: you. So speaking of climate, uh, you've been following the uh, the science standards debate and the science standards uh, process. Had a chance to talk to some legislators about the latest uh, round of uh, standards addressing climate change. What are you hearing from lawmakers at this stage of the game?
1: I, a couple of lawmakers notably haven't read uh, the new proposed science standards. That that jumped out to me yeah, that was surprising. Uh, right away. But the background folks need, and I think a lot of our listeners and readers know this, but earlier this year during the legislative session, lawmakers led by uh, GOP, GOP members of the House Education Committee removed five references uh, to global warming, climate change, human impact on the environment from a slate of temporary academic science standards that they approved, this year. In response to that, the state held a series of public hearings to get feedback from the public, which was overwhelmingly in support of teaching full science standards with global warming references intact. Following those public hearings in April, a committee composed largely of Idaho teachers and industry representatives came together in early May. They drafted five replacement standards uh, that are intended to go back to the legislature in 2018. Uh, and what they did was they tried to preserve the science behind the standards while at the same time uh, trying to come up with something that would meet with approval from the uh, legislature. And, and so they changed references in one case Uh, References to rising global temperatures to simply changing climate. In another instance, they inserted language about how technology and humans uh, can work together to perhaps mitigate uh, some effects of, of climate change. So anyways, those are the five standards that are on the table now. And I guess the most interesting two conversations I had were on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. One is a Republican named Ryan Kirby, he sits on house education. He's a retired school superintendent and he voted to remove the references to climate change and global warming. Talked to him for an extended period of time this week, and he said he likes the new science standards. He said he didn't see any red flags with them. He says that they're inquiry based, they're a little bit more neutral, and he likes it specifically that they don't spell out that human activity is largely uh, responsible for the rise in global temperatures. He likes that they left that out and that they're essentially asking school children to use data and studies and graphs and come up with their own. Uh, Conclusions, but on the other end of the spectrum, I talked with Boise uh, Democratic Rep Alana Rubel. We mentioned this a little bit Mm -hmm. last week. She was the one that really pushed for that packed climate change hearing. It was an unofficial hearing, but it lured several hundred people to the State House in response to these science standards. And she said, You know what? I have the highest respect for the teachers on this committee, and if this is what we need to do, uh, to get global warming references into our science standards and into our classrooms, so be it, but she said what she really thinks is happening is this is partisan politics at play, and this is the Republican Party um, backing the teacher of the committee of teachers into a corner and, and basically denying scientific consensus is the way that uh, Representative Rubel pitched it. I tried for two weeks. Uh, to speak with Representative Scott Syme, he's the Caldwell Republican that originally made Scott the post. Scott Syme, the science guy. Scott Syme, science, science guy from the session. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, Scott Syme, the science guy, isn't talking. Uh, I tried to get a hold of him for two weeks. He emailed me back, and he said he was going to reserve his comments for the legislative session in 2018 when lawmakers go back and review uh, these standards. So he's not tipping his car- he's not tipping his hand at all. Uh, he's not making any promises at this point. And uh, like I said, the the chairs of the two education committees, uh, Julie Van Orden and Dean Mortimer, said they have not yet uh, read the standards. And uh, Senator Mortimer in particular said he wanted to let the process play out uh, before he got involved uh, and and started uh, taking sides on these
0: new proposed science standards. Ultimately, though, this is going to come, come down to the legislature. Yeah, that's I mean, the, the bottom the line. 2018 uh, legislature ought to decide on this. They'll thing.
1: have the final say, and we knew that was going to be the case no matter what. And that has to do with not just the five references to global warming. That has to do with all of our science standards because, and this is a little bit of a technicality, but they approved uh, the science standards that they did approve this year on a temporary basis. Um, So the bottom line is look for this to come up during the 2018 legislative session, another debate about this, and then they will take action on the science standards. So uh, we've got a proposal in place. Uh, At least one of the prominent Republicans who voted against the old standards says he's more comfortable with these standards, but uh, some folks aren't talking. A lot of folks obviously haven't read the standards, so we've still got a long ways to go. Um, But yeah, look look forward to the next legislative session to continue the debate on the science standards. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about Something that's taken up a lot of our time over the last month, and that's the situation with the superintendent uh, hiring process out in the Nampa School District. It's the third largest Idaho school district, I believe, based on yep. mm-hmm. population. Kevin, the Nampa School District took a little bit of a do-over after hiring who they only identified as Candidate A uh, last month. Uh, they took a do-over this week, and you were out there. What what happened, and what did you find out? Well,
0: it really didn't take long. Uh, the, the Napa School Board uh, voted to rescind their earlier actions on, on the hiring of, uh, of, uh, of Paula Kellerer as the new superintendent, and uh, and, and rehired her. Basically, they they, mean, then, they hired her by name, which in, was the in, key distinction in, in a board meeting Wednesday night. Took them less than ten minutes to get through all of their business Wednesday night, and only took a couple of minutes to uh, to to formally hire uh, Kellerer as the superintendent. I think it's worthwhile now to kind of take a step back as to why we've been on this issue for the past couple of weeks and why we consider it important here at at Idaho Education News. I think it goes without saying that a school superintendent is an extremely important position, not just in the school district, but in the community at large. I mean, you know, the role that a superintendent plays, there's no question uh, as to its importance. So we want to make sure that when A hiring decision is made a hiring process is is undertaken that it's done as openly and as transparently as possible i think the napa district they did some things that were very transparent in this process they they had uh, a public process of interviewing finalists they had community members involved in that interviewing process when they narrowed it down to the two finalists including keller they had a community meet and greet that's all very transparent and that's all incorporating the public in a very public process a very important public decision our problem was with the the process on May 9th after an executive session which the board is allowed to do they're sure. allowed to have a discussion of a potential hire in a closed executive session our issue was with the process afterwards coming out into an open meeting announcing the decision, the intent to hire a a superintendent, but naming that superintendent only as candidate A. Naming candidate A by name a day later and confirming two days later that (laughs) Paul Keller was indeed candidate A all along. That process, we think, uh, raises concerns as far as the open meeting law is concerned. And that's why we've uh, push this issue. We've gone through the county prosecutor's office to to make our case. Uh, the district has come back and said that they don't believe that they did anything illegal um, during the brief meeting on Wednesday night. Uh, the chairman of the, the school board, Mike Fuller, uh, took issue with some of the comments that we've made, some of the reporting that we've done on. I this might not issue. get a Christmas card from him this uh, year. I, I, he was he was not happy, and, and I. I understand that there's a difference of opinion here about whether this was a legal action back on May 9th. I, I understand that. I respect that. I think we all do here. This is a difference of opinion about an interpretation of law that really is kind of a legal gray area. You know, this is not clear in the law, and that's kind of one of the takeaways that I got as I looked at the letters back and forth between, between our attorney, uh, the school district's attorney, and the deputy prosecutor who worked on the case You can go into our story on Wednesday, the story from the meeting Wednesday night. Uh, We've got links to all of those letters. If you're interested in this process, and and I I think you should be interested. I think, you know, the transparency of this process is important. It it is in the public interest. If you really want to take a deep dive into it, read the letters, see what we had to say, uh, what, what our legal arguments were, what the district's legal arguments were, what interpretation we got from the prosecutor's office, which... You know, to my reading of it, I thought it was a very even-handed interpretation of what the law said. I thought the prosecutor's office was, you know, was trying to be very, uh, you know conciliatory and trying to be very open to both sides of the argument so anyway check all of that out uh it's all there at our website at ednews.org and and read it for yourself for me just really quickly for me it all comes back to the open meeting
1: law which says and i'm greatly simplifying it here but the public's business needs to be conducted openly and in public And, and so why does that matter School districts and local units of government are funded by the taxpayers. Taxpayers pay everybody's salaries. Uh, they pay for all the operations at the school district. And so there are laws in place for a government that says the public's business needs to be conducted in public. And, and mm-hmm. I wasn't convinced that having a board meeting, they had a great, very transparent process up until the very last step, which yeah. was the mm-hmm. board meeting. Yeah. But having a board meeting saying that we have these two candidates, candidate A and candidate B, Nobody in the public has any idea who they're talking about. Nobody knows who they hired. Um, Can you imagine if uh, Bob Custer retired from Boise State University and the university launched this big, long public search process. They identified two candidates and they held a public meeting and they said, all right, it's between candidate A and candidate B and we're going to hire candidate A and we will let you know who that is when we think it's appropriate to let you know. Uh, I think people (laughs) would have a strong reaction to that. Uh, And I think that's essentially what played out here. But if you want to read, like you said, the Nampa District's response uh, via their attorney to our complaint, if you want to find out more where we're coming from. But why we did it was essentially to advocate for the taxpayers, the parents, the students, uh, everybody who's a part of the district, who pays for the district. We think that this should be the most transparent decision uh, in full view of the public that happens at any point, because we're talking about the leader of the next school district, school, uh, the next leader of the school mm-hmm. district. And it goes without saying, but in many communities, the school district has the heart and soul of the community. Uh, the superintendent is essentially the CEO of the largest uh, business, if you want to think of it in terms of a business, uh, when you look at these school districts. And so that's why we thought it was important. It had nothing to do with the quality of the candidate. We don't carry, we don't care who they hire. We had no problem with them hiring dr keller it was all about we thought the process should have been more open and
0: transparent that's where we were coming from right and because this is a gray area in the law if uh if the media doesn't press the issue nobody else will nobody nobody will so we felt like that was an important role yeah quickly a couple of stories uh, on our website that i found really interesting this week looking at takes on the mastery-based approach to education. Andrew Reed has a good one from uh, the Caldwell School District about uh, a mastery-based approach to early reading in, in a school where uh, reading scores were, were low. They've seen some improvement. Check that story out. Clark, you spent some time in Middleton looking at how mastery is changing the, the, the district's alternative high school. What did you find?
1: This was a really fun one for me. I had a chance to go out, spend some time in Middleton... But we're talking about an alternative school here, the Atlas School in Middleton. And a teacher, the principal, and the superintendent are totally trying to transform this school and its whole identity. They've introduced mastery-based education, which again means that you don't move on from class and grade to grade by spending a year in, in your seat and not failing. You truly have to master the subject matter material, which means getting an A or a B in Middleton. But they're talking about transforming this school, moving away from a discipline-first mindset, introducing academic rigor into the classroom. This summer, they're going to go through a whole rebranding process, changing the name to Middleton Academy, changing the colors, changing the logo. They're really trying to transform this school and move mastery uh, along there. It's been interesting. I talked to a couple of students who've bought in. I also talked to the teacher and the principal who said there were some difficulties that they overcame Mm -hmm. this year. A couple of students dropped out or pursued a GED. A couple of parents were skeptical. The initial number of credits that students earned this year uh, was down. It was only about two-thirds of what a similar population earned the year before. Um, But they're trying to buy into this, and and they're saying it's not doing our students any good if— For instance, we let them do the minimum and coast by with a D on their way to graduation. Or if they fail a class multiple times and their transcript is littered uh, with several Fs, that's not doing them any good. So they're trying to really shake things up, and this is important uh, because... The Governor's Task Force, in its far-reaching reform recommendations in 2013, recommended the whole state move this direction. It's a huge change. A couple of stories, like you said this week, that are case studies. This is happening very slowly in small pockets across the state. But if you want to find out how it's working, some of the obstacles, and uh, some of the reasons why people are jumping on board and pursuing this, head over to Idaho Education News. But it's something, Kevin... Uh, it's, it's a reform idea that we will probably be covering for as long as Idaho education news
0: is around, at least no, under the current a, political climate. It's a big deal. It's a big change in the school system, and it's happening in, in kind of baby steps in places like uh, Middleton and, and Caldwell. So these were a couple of good case studies.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out uh, with us this week and listening to Extra Credit. It was an unexpectedly busy week. I thought yeah, I know we really. say that every week, but on June 1st, a lot of schools are already out, and I think we published five brand new original news stories the other day on June 1st. So, busy week. A lot of policy stuff still to be decided this summer. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to next year's elections, so stick with us. Keep following at Idaho Ed News on Twitter and checking our website for all the latest stories. Thanks so much for listening to Extra Credit. We always appreciate it. I am Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.